This is Milestones. I'm Angelica Beener. I'm thrilled to bring this podcast to WBGO Studios and welcome the WBGO family to the show. Here, we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. Today, we're going to take a listen to my conversation with Christian McBride as we celebrate the 90th anniversary of the late, great Charles Stepney. If that name doesn't immediately ring a bell, think Minnie Ripperton, Earth, Wind & Fire, Ramsey Lewis, The Dells, Rotary Connection, Marlena Shaw. Essential to the chess records machine, producer, orchestrator, arranger, composer, and multi-instrumentalist Charles Stepney was one of the brightest musical lights of the 1960s and 70s before his sudden and untimely passing in 1976 at the age of just 45 years old. Join me and seven-time Grammy-winning musician, Newport Jazz Festival artistic director and host of WBGO-produced Jazz Night in America, Christian McBride, as we get into the legacy of Stepney, the depth of his unmistakable sound, and the absolute need to lift the names of Black orchestrators in particular, whose respective genius oftentimes remains in obscurity. I hope you enjoy. Angelica, when you send me the invoice for that wonderful introduction, uh, I might have to pay you in installments. <laughs> you, got, you got you got Venmo. <laughs> I'm only speaking what is actually- Cash App. <laughs> These are actual factuals. This is this is who you are. I just I'm talking to you know one of the baddest in the land. No, you you're talking to your boy. That's who you're talking to. That too. That too. We're here to discuss a man who I've been enthralled with for most of my life, and in many ways he's like a an enigma and a, a mystery of sorts, and um. We're talking about the late, greater than great Charles Stepney, Mm -hmm. who have been 90 years old today. So for the benefit of our listeners, because I know I feel like it's a name that chances are you've never heard before. Or if you've heard it, it's sort of been in passing and you attach it to maybe a thing or two. But your average person may not even know who that is. So why don't we start by just talking about who is Charles Stepney? And how I got you to come on my show to talk about him. He must be pretty important. So who is Charles Stepney? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for uh, putting the spotlight on Charles Stepney, because you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who are deep inside this world of, of Black music who still don't really quite know just how important he was. Um, he was a great, and I don't say that lightly, he was a great arranger and composer and producer, uh, musician. He was a vibraphonist. And um, I first came to know the name Charles Stepney, I I think maybe like most people of our generation, through Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, When Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, if you listen to their early recordings, especially their their Warner Brothers recordings, and you listen to like the soundtrack of uh, Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song, they were, um, 
I mean, in many ways, you could all, almost consider them like a raw jazz funk group. You know, a lot of those groups that were kind of in their infancy at that time, uh, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool in the Gang, the Ohio Players, uh, Mandrill, they were very much inspired by not just James Brown and uh, the psychedelic era of Motown, uh, but they were also influenced by the AACM. They were also influenced by Coltrane. They were influenced by Miles Davis. They were influenced by Hendrix and Santana and Led Zeppelin and all these groups that were hot in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, when Earth, Wind & Fire kind of made that next step in their development, like when the, when the band got bigger and they got these really exquisite horn arrangements and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they just, you know, they, they went to that next notch. That was Charles Stepney, you know? Um, and then the, the, the more of a deeper dive I did, I found the links between Maurice White and Charles Stepney. And, uh, I thought, okay, yeah, I, I need to find out more about Charles Stepney. And then that's kind of when I got into, the whole history of Chicago R&B and Chicago jazz. And, you know, being a Philly guy, you know, I, you know, I don't want to say I was, I was prejudiced, but, you know, I had that hometown pride. I was like, well, you know, Chicago's cool, but, you know, we got Gambling Huff and Tom Bell, you know. Um, but the more I started digging deep into the, uh, into that Chicago history, Charles Stepney is just, um, he was responsible for so much greatness coming out of that city. Absolutely. So yeah, Earth, Earth, Wind & Fire is where I first discovered his, his greatness. Amazing. See, for yeah. me, it was, you know, it was through Adele's album. You know how when you're a kid and you can picture like where you were and what right. it felt like when you heard a song. I grew up in the South Bronx in this uh, co-op building, I guess you call it. But we had a, a den that my mom and my stepdad converted into like a, a, a listening room. Mm-hmm. And they had all this like hip equipment and crazy vinyl, right? So they would play this, it was called, I think it was called the Dell Sing Dion Warwick, which uh-huh. was really, it might have, it might, it very well could have just been called the Dell Sing Burt Backrack, because all these Burt Backrack tunes, but right. it was the Dell Sing Dion Warwick. And the album is beautiful. They do Alfie and trains and boats and planes and a house is not a home but christian it ends with the most incredible version of wives and lovers i've ever heard I, i've heard it by sinatra nancy wilson you know uh i mean everybody you know a lot of people have yeah. it. it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a, one of those classic tunes and but everybody does it sort of daintily i feel like right. <laughs> It's cutesy. Right, right. Energy. Charles Stepney is like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's massive. Yes. And it was, it was the changes and the arrangement and the way he took this and, and it's whimsical, but it's, it's larger than life. And I just remember being a kid, like, what the Beep, like what, <laughs> what am I listening to? And right. so that's, I didn't know to put his name to that sound yet, but right. that for me was my first, you know, my introduction to Stepney. And you made right. a great point because Detroit had a sound and then Ohio has a sound and then Philly, you know, has a sound. 
But what, so what is it about Chicago and its sound you think that sort of differentiates? I mean, I know that could be like a, that could be an episode within a, in and of itself. Right, right. But what is something about that Chicago sound? Some of the folks who come out of Chicago, we got who? Uh, Minnie Ripperton, Shaka Khan, uh, Ramsey Lewis, right? Right. Uh, Curtis Mayfield. Right. Donnie Hathaway. Donnie Hathaway. Yeah. Billy Stewart. Yes, yes, yes. So what is it about that sound and and how important was Stepney in sort of elevating Chicago and repping Chicago in that way? Well, it seems to me that, um, like, historically speaking, their whole whole fusion of jazz and soul and orchestral writing... um, Chicago really seems to have uh, that they mastered that art before any b- before even Motown did. I mean, Motown had the had great arrangers. Uh, they had the Detroit Symphony Orchestra playing on a lot of those old tracks, but Chicago had certain orchestral arrangements that I don't want to say they were almost more important than the lead vocals, but. Um, Stepney and also have to give a shout out to uh, Richard Evans, who was also a great arranger from Chicago. Those two gentlemen really um, took the art of orchestral writing and brought it to R&B in a way that uh, Philly later picked up on. Because, you know, Gamble and Huff and Tom Bell didn't really get that together until like 69, 70 by that time, Chicago was already rolling with that right. sound, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and Motown had already established themselves. And and I used to have a band director. I, I feel bad saying this, but he used to say that the 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 Memphis sound is ten horns playing in unison. Oh <laughs> damn! I said, "Oh, that's cold blooded." He's like, he's like, I ain't saying they weren't funky. They had, right. they were funky. They were soulful. It was gritty. It was, it made you want to dance. But on the, uh, on, on that sort of sophisticated level, like no, right, right. <laughs> like you know, Chicago, Detroit, and Philly had that. But um, you know, when I was growing up, my mother was a huge. Well, I mean, she still is, but she, she was a ginormous uh, Billy Stewart fan. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother used to tell me stories about, you know, uh, you know, the fat man, as they called him, you know, and he just was uh, this great singer who would take these old songs like Summertime and uh, and redo them in this real sort of modern R&B way. And, you know, my friend uh, Alan Leeds very well. Yes. And uh, Alan, when I got to know uh, Alan and his brother, Eric. Uh, they both used to say, well, they still say, they said, look, all praises due to the Temptations, but our group was the Dells. And um, I remember Eric saying, he said, you know, can't take nothing away from the Temps. They, they, they led a generation. They were like the gold standard, but the Dells. And he used to like, you know, the Dells, it's the Dells, you know. And so uh, I went back. I said, look, I, I, I know a little bit about the Dells. Uh, let me go back and, and really do some homework. And this is like in the early 90s. Okay. And then now I see Charles Stepney's name again. You know, I was like, oh, that's dude from Earth, Wind & Fire. And I was like, okay, I need, I need to figure out what's going on with the Chicago sound. So then I went back and, you know, discovered um, 
all the arranging that he had done for like Muddy Waters and Ramsey Lewis and uh, a very young Minnie Ripperton with the Rotary Connection. And uh, I became a huge fan of his writing because, uh, you know, writing for uh, orchestras and and uh, really that that fine art of arranging. Like like I said, I grew up being a, a Tom Bell fan. Tom Bell was like, you know, being a Philly boy, that to me is like the golden standard for fusing high-level orchestral writing and fusing R&B. But uh, Stepney was on that long before Philly was. So uh, I really came to admire the the greatness of, of his writing and, uh, you know, what he did for all these great chess and, and, and checker artists. You know, Dorothy Ashby is another one, you know. Right, um, That's right. Yeah, so uh, that whole Chicago thing, I never really got deep inside of until the 90s. And the more I got into it, I, you know, my, my, my hat's off to uh, everything that uh, th- those great musicians accomplished in the Windy City in, in the 60s. Man, it's it's like a rabbit hole. The more you yeah. dig, the more you find out. And you're like, wait, what? Like the connections right. that you make are insane. And so, you know, in talking about Stepney as an orchestrator, um, you've been writing for big band for two decades now about something like that. Something yep. like that. You know, I know you, you had been writing for big band maybe a decade before you actually started. Right really adding it to your professional resume but um it seems like it's a bit of an exclusive club in terms of recognition right so we have these incredible black orchestrators but it seems like it's a small club most don't get um recognition right uh, in that light it's uh mostly male mostly white but Stepney, who I found out, uh, actually wanted to go to Juilliard, and he ended up going instead to, I think it was called Roosevelt Conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he is classically trained, um, but he's elusive. And I think about yeah. folks like Harold Wheeler. Um, I think, Ooh, right? That's a like, bad, bad man. You know, when um, I, I did an Instagram post about Harold Wheeler one time, because, you know, he was the main, he was the chief conductor and musical director for the Oscars for like 25 years, you know? And uh, it's all those behind the scenes heroes and, and heroines that, that no one really, that like the general, the musicians know, but the general right. public don't really know. They don't you know? know. And uh, Hale Smith and... Mm, come on now. Yeah. Hale Smith and Joyce Brown, who I recently discovered was the first Black woman orchestrator on Broadway. Yeah. And Luther Henderson and Linda, Linda Twine. Um, and Linda Twine, that's a bad and, lady. Yeah, William Grant Still, uh, yep. Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. I want you guys. Oh, come on now. Breaking oh, it down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to elevate their names as well because I want our listeners to go and check out all these other unsung but mighty that's right. orchestrators. And so wh- what, what do you think that's about? I mean, that's a part of our history and our contribution that is really just so- sort of push out of yeah yeah i agree you know i i find that even now think of think of a institution like motown that has been talked about there's been hundreds of you know 
specials and and dozens of documentaries and and things told about the Motown story. But in those stories, how often do you hear the names of Paul Reiser and David Van De Pitt and these people who actually wrote for the orchestra? You know, growing up in uh, again, you know, the whole Philly connection. You think of like the stylistics, yeah, and you think of Betcha by Golly Wow. Right. When you hear that opening oboe, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe the general public never thinks who wrote that. Yes. They they hear the singers when they come in. They hear these chord changes. But the, the whole thought of who actually took the time to write all those notes out for the orchestra and who did it so well, you know, mm. um, when you hear a song like Just My Imagination and when Eddie Kendrick sing, when they sing the hook, Just My Imagination, and then you hear the running away. It's like, that's genius. That's absolute genius. You know, like who wrote that violin part? You know, right. and I guess for some reason, uh, it's never really um the people behind the scenes, and you know, I, I don't, I'm, I don't mean to put Barry Gordy on blast, but like, it's, it, it was always so important to make sure that the the stars get out there, the people behind the scenes get no love, you know, and uh, unless you're a musician who really cares about that kind of stuff, um, I mean, a lot of a lot of those uh, R and B and soul records. First of all, the musicians never got any credits on the back of the albums. No. The arranger would get like really, uh, you know, a little tiny line. You would have to look. Re- if you look too quick, you'd miss it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, arrangements by Paul Reiser, you know, da, 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 produced by Norman Whitfield, you know. Um, right. But um, you know, like the, the people that really do that work, you know, you mentioned Linda Twine. When I was a kid and uh, my mother had the soundtrack album for Lena Horne on Broadway. She, oh, she had her, her, her Broadway show in, in the early 80s. And uh, I remember as a kid looking at the back and it said, uh, all arrangements and orchestrations by Linda Twine. And I remember thinking, who's that? I want to know who that is, you know? And um, that's when I really started getting into a deep dive of who are these people that, that do this part, you know? Uh, who are these people who apparently to a large extent get taken for granted, you know, um, you, you mentioned Harold Wheeler, you know what I mean? That's another person. I mean, I think of, you know, people know Quincy Jones as a legend, but I don't really know if people know why he's a legend. Like Mm. I tell people all the time, if you take away Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones still would have been a legend. Had he passed away tragically in 1978, he still would have been a legend because right. of all the stuff that he wrote, you know? And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's that it's those behind-the-scenes people who... Now, Sinatra, on the other hand, I think because Sinatra always had a real soft spot for the musicians, Yes, uh, Sinatra always made sure that his arrangers got almost as much cred as he did. Quincy Jones, Gordon Jenkins, Nelson Riddle, uh, Billy May, you know, um, people knew those names, you know, Johnny Mandel, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So it always kind of disappoints me in retrospect that on, on, on all those soul records, 
uh, the arrangers and the musicians never really got the credit. Like a lot of people don't realize Donny Hathaway started his career as a session guy, you know, That's right. just playing piano on a lot of those chess and checker recordings. Um, and Maurice then- White was a, was a drummer, house drummer for chess records, you know, um, Ray Parker started out his career as just a session guy, you know, playing behind uh, Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock and people like that. You know, Um, I I don't think people realize that Joe Sample is the piano player on I Want You Back. That opening. That's Joe Sample. That's Joe Sample. Get out of here. Yes. Yep. And so, and, and so, why this is why <laughs> your your well of knowledge it's like encyclopedic. I feel like you are the eternal student and the master teacher rolled up in one. Oh man, we're 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 all perpetual students. I love learning. I love yeah. learning. I love stumbling upon these these facts and like you know it's like what you know. Um, that's like, what you just did for me with that. I had no idea yeah. that Joe Sample is has that iconic yep. list before I went back. That's crazy. <laughs> yep. Now yep. I know that's him on the uh the on uh mini at inside me. Yes. So that little right. Rhodes part. <laughs> right. That's right. So that's but I knew I knew that. But I did not know. That's insane. So I'm sorry. I cut you off, but please. No, 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 no. It's all good. You know, when Motown moved to L.A. in 72 and they started using all the West Coast guys, um, the Crusaders, of course, were were based out there. And I I wonder if someone has ever done like sort of a uh, exhaustive discography on both Joe Sample and Wilton Felder. Because they played on everything in the seventies. I mean, they basically lived in the recording studio, not just making records with the Crusaders, but all those all those Motown records. I mean, like they they played on, on you know on on uh, uh, Let's Get It On. You know, they played on all that stuff. You know, with, with Paul Humphrey on drums, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of of, of records that they played on in, in the seventies. And I remember when I discovered that. You know, because I knew Wilton Felder as the saxophonist from the Crusaders. But then when I would see all these other R&B records from that period and it said Wilton Felder on bass, I thought, well, that can't be the same guy. Can't right. be, you uh-huh. know. And then when I discovered, like, it was the same guy, I was like, what? Who plays saxophone and bass? That's a weird <laughs> double, you know. That's a weird double. Yeah, it's like, wow, it's like. Them cats, they, they were deep. The, the you know Joe Sample and Wilton Felder, man, those those two cats, they ran L.A. on the mm-hmm. session circuit in the seventies. You know, but you know Charles Stepney is one of those great behind the scenes uh, icons that uh, still not a lot of people really get. You know, um, yeah. I I think of uh, one of my favorite Earth, Wind, and Fire songs, "Get Away," which was like uh, oh. That might be one of the first songs I ever heard as a kid where I thought, you know, and not really being a musician yet and listening to it going like, man, those horns are killing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because that's the thing. It, Stephanie was not just an, an, an just an incredible string arranger, but also 
horn arranger. Oh, and, yes. And just like the intro that... Masterpiece. Bro, it's, it, it's, it's a, it is a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, and so you, you brought up um, <laughs> the whole saxophone bass thing, which is hilarious. Yeah, right? But but I want to talk about as we start to because there's a couple of albums that I think it's worth us just like digging into a little bit. A couple of Stepney's masterpieces. Um, one of them I'd love to talk. One of them that I'd love to talk about is "Come to My Garden." Mm. Ripperton. Now Stepney is is largely uh, credited when well within within his obscurity he's credited for sort of discovering. Minnie. Minnie was a secretary, right. I believe, at Chess Records. Right. Started off as a receptionist or something like that. Yeah, like like Martha Reeves at Motown. Exactly. Yo, there's talent at that front desk always. Hey, I gotta tell you, on my album Vertical Vision, yeah, there's a song called Lejos de Usted. And when I first wrote that song, I said, I hear a female voice speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, man, I don't, I don't know anybody who could do that. I got the receptionist at Right Track Studios, Get who was a, 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 a sister from uh, the Boogie Down. She was from the Bronx, uh, 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 a New Yorican. Uh, and I said, Liz, you speak Spanish? And she was like, of course. Right, you know? right. Um, she, she came from her desk and came into the studio and, and and read this thing you in like in me. fifteen minutes and went back to reading, you know, answering the phone. Exactly. So yeah, that that front desk is deep. It it is right. And I, listen, I'm a former front desker as well. I was at the Hit Factory. That's right. But yes, it's often that's that's like your your entree into the business. Sometimes getting your foot in the door. Right. Whether it be the industry on behind the scenes or as an artist is that front desk. Yeah. And yeah. so many was. A receptionist at Chess Records and uh, Marshall Chess and Charles Stepney sort of co-found together Rotary Connection, which is right. um, sort of uh, Marshall's uh, um, idea. He, he wanted this psychedelic group of black and white and male and female. And, you know, so so goes the story that it was sort of his brainchild. And he needed Stepney to help him sort of bring that to fruition. And then uh, they do maybe five records, uh, Rotary Connections as five incredible albums. But I want to talk about the album that comes out of all of that work with him and Minnie, with Charles Stepney and Minnie Ripperton, who both pass away tragically young. And so when you look back at that time, let's say 70 to 76, when Charles Stepney passes away and you just look at, well, really, 67, maybe, I think the first right. Connection album. You you look back from like 67 to 76, so not even 10 years of these, these two artists who would both be gone, you know, um, within 10 years, you know, of, of their starting point and what they were able to do together, it feels faded. When you listen to Come to My Garden, which comes out in 1970, after, the, after they've sort of got their feet wet together, they're working together all this time, they've got their, their thing, and then Come to My Garden comes out, you feel like 
when I hear it, it's like no one else could have done this for Minnie but Charles Stepney. No one could have given her the the pick the the backdrop for her voice the way Charles Stepney could. That's right. Is that I need a fact check. Is that Maurice White on drums? I I actually don't know, but I would I would assume it would be. Um 1970, anything recorded with that sort of, you know, it, it's got the whole Chicago chess crew on there. You know, I know that record came out on, on GRT. Yes, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I would I would guess that that's Maurice on there. Yeah, because or, or, or Morris Jennings, one of the two. Gotcha. It, yeah. And it might even be both of them. Yeah, got, right. Um, Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland Eaton. Eaton. Cleveland yeah. Eaton. Now I want to talk about Cleveland Eaton because he, first of all, I'm going to just let you take it away with that. But he, on this record, he is so indispensable to the yeah. sound, the complete sound of yep. me. We're talking, Come to My Garden is Minnie Ripperton's debut album for all the listeners. And Cleveland Eaton talk to me and he just passed away last year yeah yeah so talk talk to me about how important he is in in the scheme of things well i'm it's another one of these sort of like shocking fun discovery moments i first became familiar with cleveland eaton as a member of the count basie orchestra he played with the basie band starting in the late 70s i believe it was through the early 80s um uh, either is I think either right before John Clayton or right after John Clayton, one of the two. Mm-hmm. But um, that's how I first discovered. I think right after John Clayton, so like 1980, 1981, somewhere in there. And I I became a fan of his through Basie, and then um, somewhere along the way, I found this uh, Ramsey Lewis Trio album, and uh, I see. Cle- Cleveland Eaton on there. And I went, oh, that's dude from uh, the Count Basie band, right? And uh, again, it was the same thing. I was like, no, I, I need to do some research and, and find out more about him. And then, um, oh, there's a great, uh, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but I saw a clip of the Ramsey Lewis trio on Soul Train from like 74, 75, what? somewhere in there. And uh, they're playing live, and Cleve Eaton is playing bass. Oh, my and, uh, goodness. I, I just remember that. being like, yo, that's my man, you know? <laughs> so um, all of those. So w- once I started, you know, doing that deep dive, and, you know, I think I heard, I heard about Come to My Garden before I actually heard the record. Okay. Um. I don't remember who told me about it, but I remember the description was, you know, because we all know uh, uh, um, Minnie's uh, epic records from the 70s. And so, you know, there's a certain sound that we all, like the her, her big fans connect with. And so uh, I said, well, tell me about, you know, coming to my garden. It was, and, and most cats who I spoke to about that record, they were like, yeah, it's... Um, it's different. It's not the kind of mini you're used to. Right. I was like, well, well, what's that mean? They said, well, you got to hear the record. You know, it's it's happening, but it's weird. 
I was like, well, I, I kind of like weird, you know? So uh, I like those records where you can't really put a finger on exactly what it is, you know? Yes. And uh, which made Rotary Connection even more enticing to find out because I would talk to cats and they would say, well, if you think coming to my garden is weird, wait till you hear Rotary Connection. That's really weird. You know? Right, right. I was like, well, I really want to hear that, you know? Exactly. Um, and 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 you're right, but 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 getting back to Cleve, mm-hmm. um, what he plays on that album, I mean, he was probably one of the most important members of that whole sound of mm-hmm. of, of, the, of that era. You know, mm-hmm. uh, being a part of Ramsey's trio, uh, being a part of of Stepney's sessions on on Come to My Garden and so many others. Uh, Cleve Eaton was a was a very very great great musician. And yeah. Rest in peace. yeah, you know, I feel like, you know, we know James Jameson and we know um, Chuck Rainey. And, Ooh, you know, yes. he's, he's, right. he's my personal favorite. And then I, I just spoke to him about a week ago. I know. I was yeah. like, yo, and, and, and Purdy, right? Yep. Yep. I, I was just like, Christian, you know what? I, I, I could have been the, the the water bringer or something. I could have <laughs> could have had a boom mic. Something. <laughs> like you, that I I haven't I haven't gone back to listen to it, but I saw that come through my social media feed. And I was just like, what is what is the life of Christian? A day in the life of Christian McBride? Like this is crazy. <laughs> I mean. It's the same, but but yeah, I think that you know Charles each. Uh, I'm sorry, Cleve. Uh, yeah, needs to be uh, just as off the tip of our tongue as those Amen. particular session plays because he's just that you know um, important. That's right. You know? That's right. And and I also want to talk about um, because also you being a writer, orchestrator, arranger yourself. One one thing about Stepney that was also very mystical was that you take a song like Memory Band, where yes. Ramsey Lewis records it, and it's it's wordless, and it's in a trio setting, and then, you know, Rotary Connection does it, and A Tribe Called Quest samples that beginning part. Right. That, that little, la, 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 la. And that, yep. that, that whole sort of, like you said, psych, psychedelic soul Yes. Hybrid thing. And then Minnie does it on Come to My Garden and they add lyrics and each iteration, it's like an expansion. Yeah. You, you know, the, there's something really important that I don't think a lot of music historians are really aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be this stigma for Black orchestrators and black arrangers that they didn't know how well we didn't know how to write four strings there was always this stigma that if you're going to hire a black arranger they're great with horns you know they they know that big band sound uh-huh but strings you know like and 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 auxiliary woodwinds they don't really know about that. Right. You know, 
Right. That's our territory, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a story I read. I wish I could remember where it was about the late great. I mean, someone who was probably one of my chief influences, the late great Oliver Nelson. Oh, mm-hmm. and like when you talk about black orchestrators and arrangers who really broke major ground in the '60s, you got to put Oliver Nelson right up there with Quincy Jones, and. He was saying in this interview that it was very difficult for him to get sessions to write for strings. You know, he said, well, we'll leave that to the white arrangers because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what, you know, we know that. Y'all don't know that. Right. right. And I think what really was a major turning point in the music business, not just from the business, but also uh, in terms of, uh, of, of uh, music, was the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. When Sgt. Pepper came out, that really did, it, it really changed the game on a lot of levels in popular music, you know, because it became less about sort of like bubblegum pop. Right. And and now, like, chief arrangers had to know something about harpsichord. They had to know about the English horn. They had to know about the oboe. Uh, they had to know about the piccolo trumpet. They had to know about the D trumpet. They had to know about the the bass trombone, the tuba, the glockenspiel. All of these are instruments that you didn't see in historically, uh, you know, black big bands or dance bands, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, with specific regard to Charles Stepney, if you listen to Come to My Garden, if you listen to... Uh, all the Rotary Connection albums, it's clear to me that this man was one of very few who really, you can't learn that overnight. You know, it's not like Sergeant Pepper came out and then Charles Stepney said, well, let me learn how to write for English horn. <laughs> right. Let me learn how to write for oboe and bassoon. He already knew that. Oliver Nelson already knew that. Let me learn how to vi- write for violins. You know, they already knew how to do that. So, um, in terms of just sheer genius and skill mm-hmm. in orchestration, Charles Stepney would have to be one of the top five people you you listen to, black or white, because he he was he was an absolute musical genius. That part, yes, yes, all of that, <laughs> yes, black or white, because like you said, there's an implicit. There's implicit racism. There's implicit uh, elitism in yes. the idea that, you know, you guys stick to your horns and stuff. But with this stuff, you know, this, uh, we got uh, Rachmaninoff. Sophisticated, and, right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Y'all don't, y'all don't know about that. Y'all stick y'all, to that, you know, exactly. y'all stick to that bassy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly that. Stephanie, hands down, defies that stereotype as do all of those other orchestrators that we've been mentioning throughout the throughout our conversation and like you said black or white because what he was also able to do so flawlessly was not make it contrived when you start adding like the the more black right elements mm-hmm. so like soul and r&b and stuff he was able to bring the classical world and the pop, rock, soul, funk, jazz. That's right. All these other elements together in a way that 
that that that is an art in itself too because it can it can be cheesy it can be contrived if you don't know what you're doing right yes but, yes right but it is so timeless you put on any of those albums and they're so timeless from Ramsey Lewis to to Earth Wind and Fire to uh, the Dells, uh, Denise Williams, even mm. uh, the This Is Nisi album, her first record. I mean, you put on any of those albums. That, that's why he he's like your fave that you don't know is your fave. That's right. That's <laughs> ab- absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the story about when Quincy Jones went to Hollywood and started looking for work as a uh, film scorer? Mm-hmm. Um, he had the most revered, popular, beloved uh, orchestrator in his corner in Henry Mancini. And uh, Henry Mancini got this call to do a score. And uh, Henry Mancini said, look, my calendar is packed. Uh, I don't have time to do it. Y'all need to get Quincy Jones. He's, he's a bad young dude. Get him. I can't remember what film company would, you know, Paramount, MGM, whatever, with 20th Century Fox, whatever it was. And uh, they didn't know Quincy Jones was black. And when Uh-oh. they discovered he was black, they went to Henry Mancini. They went back to Henry Mancini. He, he tells the story himself. Uh-huh. And Henry Mancini said that the head of the, of, of the company says, well, Quincy Jones is black. And uh, Henry Mancini said, yeah, and said, well, um, can can black people write film music? Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And Henry Mancini said, what kind of dumbass question is that? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like, do you know who this young man is? Get him. And so when, when you talk about in, implicit racism, and, you know, what that's, I mean, in the grand scheme of history, that wasn't that long ago. We're talking 1963, 64, when wow. this conversation happened, you know. And, um, you know, thank goodness for the people who had the power, who understood the ridiculousness of the people who had even more power. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Henry Mancini, Frank Sinatra, people that, look, this whole thing you got a, a, against black people can't do this, might not be able to do that. Can they do this? Y'all need to stop that. Get get those great musicians in here. Exactly. I'm 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 only sad that Charles Stepney never got a chance to be as big as Hollywood. You know what I mean? Cuz had right. he lived oh. and and gone to Hollywood, you know, I'm sure somebody like him and and Harold Wheeler and Oliver Nelson, another person who died tragically way too young, they would have ruled the roost. Oh, you know, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it breaks my heart to know that Charles Stepney, we died in 76 or 77? 76, yeah. 76. Yeah. Oliver yeah. Nelson died in 75, you know? And it's just like uh, these great black flames yeah. died out so so early, you know? And, you know, 45 years old, you, you know, when you think about it, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 45. You know, right. it's, just, it's just like to, to to think about, first of all, just the genius that that they left behind at such what they accomplished in such little time at yeah. such a young age. And like you said, it just begs 
what could have been, what what could right. he have done? Because I, I do understand that Stepney was in the middle of uh, writing uh, his a symphony. Yes, right. When he when he passed, just, it, it just hit me that Stepney, Donny Hathaway, and Minnie Riperton just kind of like back to back to back, back like to back that. To back. You know, yeah. It's like I I never really thought about the timeline of just like how much genius was snuffed out within what four years? Yeah, four years. It's yeah, insane. And it's funny you bring up Donnie because I was looking for, I said, you know, this is Chicago. There's got to be a Donnie Stepney connection. But I was never able to find it until I found this Phil Upchurch album. And Donnie's on piano. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I actually didn't realize that Phil Upchurch was actually, was also, it is also a great bass player. Right. I always knew him as a guitar player, you know? Yeah. And Stepney writes this tune on that album, uh, Black Gold, I think is the name of the tune. Brilliant yes. tune. Another tune people are might be really familiar with, but not know that this is Stepney. And also, uh, you mentioned him already. The uh, Another orchestrator, Richard... Uh, oh, Richard Evans. Richard Evans. Yeah. Yep. Stepney, uh, California Soul, Marlena Yes. Shaw. Yep. That's another one that that people will hear that song, but like you said, it's like that it's like that stylistics thing. Yeah, that, right. You know, so that that's another one. That's a great song. That's I feel like now it's been licensed on every commercial and right airline right. and all that kind of stuff. But but those but uh, that's another step me uh, tune. Um, also, and when we're talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire, and like you were saying in those first early years where they were kind of figuring out their sound and figuring out what they were actually going to end up being. And then Stepney comes in and sort of really helps them cultivate and chisel out right. and find their sound. Yep. Stepney introduced them to the kalimba, which yes. I, and that ended up being such a big part of Earth, Wind & Fire sound and, you know, something that they would utilize all the time. And I think he didn't live to hear spirit. That's right. I think he, yeah, he died right before the album was released. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I think spirit was released in early 77, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Or or late, late 76 or early 77, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. 76. uh, I Am came out in 77, I think it was. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. All in all. All in all came out in 77. Yeah. Got it. Got it. But yeah, that's the way of the world. That album. Come on, man. I mean, that that album put Earth, Wind, and Fire on the map in a totally different way. Right. Right. And that was Stephanie. Yes. Yes, it was. And people don't know that. So so I want to talk about Maurice White a little bit too. We touched on him, but Maurice, right, he was he started out. So they're not from Chicago, but they they really cut their teeth in Chicago. Yeah. Um, but so you said, like you said, Maurice White starts out as a drummer. House drummer, right. Okay. And then he ends up in Ramsey Lewis. The Ramsey Lewis Trio. Yep. And there's a, there's a great story that I heard from uh, the legendary drummer. And uh, he also happens to be my neighbor, the great Billy Hart. You'll love this story. So 
1971, Herbie Hancock is signed to Warner Brothers at that time. Uh, there apparently was a, a Warner Brothers party uh, where they invited all of their artists to come. And uh, on, at this party was Maurice White. Uh-huh. And uh, Maurice sees Billy Hart. And uh, Billy says, hey, man, what, what you doing here? He says, uh, well, we just got signed to Warner Brothers. Who just got signed to Warner Brothers? Oh, this new group I'm starting. You know, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, and Billy's like, you mean you left Ramsey? He's like, uh, yeah, you know, I, I want to do something different. Mm-hmm. He's like, man, like, the Ramsey Lewis trio was like one of the best most cushiest gigs you could have at that time. You know, Ramsey was very popular, working all the time, making lots of, you know, making good money, mm-hmm. uh, you know, guaranteed number of gigs throughout the year. And he was like, why in the world would you want to leave Ramsey Lewis's trio? Y'all working all the time, man. And he was like, no, I, I, I got something new I, I got in mind. You know? I got a vision, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Billy was like, well, good luck with that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, their first record came out on Warner Brothers, and, you know, it, it did okay, you know, but they didn't really hit their stride till they got to Columbia, you know. And uh, and even it, they didn't really hit their stride till like, their third album on Columbia, you know. Exactly. And so, like, you know, Billy was saying in retrospect, he was kind of like, man, I thought Maurice was so crazy, like, why would you want to leave Ramsey Lewis's trio? You know, right. it's like all that money and visibility you get. What, what are you doing? You know, well, we see what happens. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Like, it, it, and that's that. I didn't What? Thank you for sharing that with me. The lesson I hear in that story is, like you said, he could have been very comfortable. And especially with Ramsey being more of like a jazz musician. For, that's right. For jazz. That's. That's the the prime gig. That's the the creme de la creme. Exactly. He's he's more like commercial and more widely known. Like you said, right. more more cushy. You know, it's like I was gonna say comparable to Ahmad Jamal, but even more like uh, right by by seventy by seventy seventy one. Ramsey probably had the the upper hand in terms of visibility. Sure, even more than Ahmad. Right. So it's like, I could see how somebody's like, you're going to do what? But like, if you have, it reminds me of, I don't know if you ever watched the Jacksons, the American Dream movie. Oh, absolutely. I I got a vision, Katie. I got a vision. He had a clear vision of, uh, clearly, you know, and and it took that refining and all of the the right things. So help me with the chronology here with with, uh, Sun Goddess, right? Mm, Yes. Because I never know if it's a Ramsey Lewis tune or an Earth, Wind, and Fire. Ramsey Lewis. It is Ramsey's tune. Yep. Okay. Yep. Got it. In fact, Ramsey, uh, on, on the album, on the Ramsey Lewis album, Sun Goddess, he basically has Earth, Wind, and Fire playing on it. You know, it's it's Verdine and all those guys playing on that track. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, of course, turned it around and recorded it on, on Gratitude. And uh, it became an even even bigger hit. Right. You know? But Ramsey, it's his first. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The, thing, the funny thing is that there's this through line 
where Stepney has these 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 tentacles on all of it, right? So he's got an arm on Ramsey, an arm on on um, Earth, Earth Fire, Fire, an right. arm on on Minnie. Oh, Minnie. Yeah. So, do you think that, in a way, he was trying to create a sort of a cohort in a way because he wasn't really he really stuck with. Um, like the Ramsey Lewis trio is on Come to My Garden, yeah, you know, and yeah. they're, they're, like he kind of moved them around like chess pieces almost. And then, of course, you add in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, right. all that kind of stuff. But he really kind of utilized the same players, but just in different ways, yeah. so to speak. So it makes me wonder if he was trying to um, establish, in terms of when we think of region and for Chicago, like establish a a, a brand or a, a cohort of, of sorts. Yeah, I, I think, well, all of them, like, like like the sort of the the common, like like the thread is, is chess records, you know, uh, Minnie Ripperton being a, a, a secretary there, Maurice White being the house drummer there, Charles Stepney being one of the house arrangers there. Right. I think that once um, Rotary Connection got going, once uh, Earth, Wind & Fire got going, once they left, the core there of that relationship with Charles and all of those people is chess records. I think that uh, they all formed a bond. They, they trusted Charles Stepney. They knew what a genius he was. They knew how great he was. So when they, when everybody decided to break out from that and go their own route, we got to use Charles. Charles is the one that knows uh, what we're trying to get to, and he's the one that can help us get to that next level. So uh, I really think people like Maurice White, uh, Minnie Ripperton, uh, I mean, even even Donny Hathaway. I mean, I don't, I don't. Donny Hathaway didn't. I mean, he was he was great enough to write his own stuff, right? That's right. But even Donny Hathaway knew that you know Charles is the cat. You know what I mean? So um, I think that um, all of those people just had so much deep respect and uh, and love for Charles Stepney that even after they left the Chess Records. Uh, you know, once that era sort of ended, they 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 were smart enough to know that they needed to keep Charles uh, in the, in their in their world. That that's great context. That makes so much sense. And yeah. speaking of Donnie, you know, on when he does, uh, which is my favorite Donnie album, Extensions of a Man. <laughs> um, that first that first piece that I love the Lord. Yes. Right. That is, it, it's like a symphonic work. And I wonder, I never had this thought until listening to you now. I wonder if Stepney influenced him. Oh, I'm sure. To do that. Yeah. I'm sure. Wow. I'm sure Donnie Hathaway must have pulled Charles Stepney to the side and said, hey, bro, uh, <laughs> what you doing there? Exactly. You know, you know, I'm sure he pulled him and Richard Evans to the side and say, hey, show, show me what you're doing. You know, exactly. and I'm sure they were more than happy to share the information. Yes, yes, yes. I find that most most musicians, um, they really they're appreciative when you want to know what they're doing. You know, mm -hmm. uh, as a young bass player, if I go to Ray Brown or or Ron Carter and, you know, Mr. Brown, Mr. Carter, can you show me what you're doing? They're so happy that somebody cares, mm -hmm. they're more than happy to show you. 
you know? Wow, wow. That and that's that's most not... of them are. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my water to sip. <laughs> For emphasis on that one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. But but by and large, like you said, you know, more than happy to. And yeah. I remember Ramsey Lewis, I saw an interview he did um, because apparently, so Charles Stepney has three daughters and apparently they were working on like a documentary. And it, right. Yeah. And it seemed like it didn't get off the ground or, yeah. or something like that. I think yeah, I saw like, it's like a 10 minute video or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Interrupted genius, which I think, right. they, I, I hope they keep that title. Cause that's, that's, that's just, that's it. Indeed. It's right there. Um, Cause Indeed. I think uh, Maurice White talked to him the day he passed. Like he, he wow. passes unexpectedly of, of a heart attack right. at 45 years old, three young children and a wife. And um, I think that was the same age Oliver Nelson was. Oliver Nelson was when he when he died, forty five. Oh man, these like babies, you know. Yeah, right. Kid, especially Minnie. I think Minnie's thirty one or 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 something crazy like that. Um, Yeah, those are those are some of my earliest, darkest memories. When when both Donny Hathaway died and and Minnie Riperton died, I, I remember that extremely well. Mm. I, I remember how crushed my mother was when when Donnie died. Yeah, that's like I think, I think he passes like you said. It's it's if they're like in three year. Oh right, wait a minute, because Donnie passes in seventy nine. Seventy nine, right? And yep. and many too, right? Uh, I think she was eighty one. Oh, eighty one, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. right, 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 because right. she. But, I mean, that's still you know. That's still pretty back to back. That's a back to that's a one two. Yeah. The person yeah. I think about often when I think about them being snatched like that, I think about Stevie Wonder. Right. Boy, like those that particular bunch back to back to back. Because because Stepney, y'all need to know that that Stevie Wonder was a huge fan of Charles Stepney. Like the respect that he had from all of our favorites, he's yeah. our favorites favorite. <laughs> have you seen the Soul Train episode when um, uh, Stevie Wonder pays tr- tribute to Minnie? Yeah, I have. yeah, yeah that, that was pretty heavy. That is so heavy, and just just to I hear think he, he played Perfect Angel, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it, I mean, in the way he played it was just yeah, so 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 beautiful, and and solo piano and. The thing about that episode, like... Don- oh, you know what? I'm sorry, sis. Minnie Riperton died in 79 also. She did. Okay. Damn. I thought it was a little later. Because uh, I think uh, I seem to remember uh, Memory Lane came out after oh. she died. Is that is that... It is. I believe you're right. But I always thought that that... that mem- I associate Memory Lane with the 80s as well. Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah, for sure. And it probably was like right at the... Yeah, there. It's like oh, it's almost like hotter than July. I'm always like seventy nine, eight. Right, like, right, 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 right. It's like certain albums. I'm, I'm something about seventy nine that throws me. But okay, so yeah, I think Memory Lane, another brilliant uh, a song um, of of many. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, Donny Hathaway died January of seventy nine. Okay. Minnie Riperton died in June of seventy nine. Ugh. <sighs> 
that's just too much of a of a one two punch. July, yeah, July seventy nine. July seventy nine. Yeah. yeah, wow, rough year. R- rough year, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, really, really deep. And so, in thinking about Stepney and his um, sort of lasting legacy, like what what do you hope to see for him? Because I mean, I think he should. Is he somebody that should be taught about in conservatories and absolutely that kind of stuff? What What would you like to see as someone who's so steeped in education? You know, when when we talk about greater rangers, we tend to put the focus on. I mean, you, you have the uh, what is known as the the quote-unquote classical composers, your, your Bach, your Beethoven, and you get into the more modern people like uh, Bartok or Ravel, Stravinsky, people like that. And when you get into pop music, it's usually people who uh, worked with white pop artists, you know, the Sinatra people, you know, it's like, the Johnny Mandels, the Nelson Riddles, and um, Henry Mancini's. And they were great as well. There's no doubt. They were awesome. But there is a style of music in, in this music that we call soul that had some of the greatest arrangers that get no doubt, you know. Uh, and you mentioned so many of them, your Linda Twines, your Harold Wheeler's, uh, your Charles Stepney's, your and 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 you get all of the jazz arrangers, which they they teach in school. You know, people like Oliver Nelson and Quincy Jones and Ernie Wilkins and and people like that. But uh, there's a whole school of black music of great arrangers that don't get paid attention to. Charles Stepney is really at the at, at the top of that class. You know, again, the people like David Van de Pitt and and and. Uh, Paul Reiser and Tom Bell, people like that, you know, and um, I I hope Charles Stepney can uh, somehow not be in people's subconscious as just, you know, some R&B arranger. He was a real true genius. And I, I, I mean that deeply. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that thing you share, I mean, you know, I, I know that album, but that, that arrangement of Amen, Come on, man! Oh my God! Oh, I mean, I mean, that was the thing in in preparing to talk to you. You got to have a certain skill to be able to write like that. That's not willy nilly, you know. Like you said, oh, Sergeant Pepper's. Oh, suddenly I can, I can do this. I mean, right. Pe- people have... people love to celebrate willy nilly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, you mean you just, you know, that's just something you like. No, I studied. I know my craft. I know how to make this happen. You know, exactly. And uh, Charles Stepney was one of those people. Richard Evans is another one. Richard Evans. I mean, even in listening to that version of Amen, because I was listening, I've been listening to Stepney all week, preparing to talk to you about him. I've been listening to any album that I know of that he's on. I've been just playing it over and over. But, um, that that version of Amen, which we know that song, I feel like more, uh, we know it through the impressions. Yes, yeah. That's like 65 or 64, right. their version. And then to know that it was a, a, a older sort of Negro spiritual hymn, forgive me, I can't remember his name. 
um, but from the 40s. And he was in his own right, this great composer, possibly orchestrator. Um, I can't think of his name. It's escaping me right now. But like I said, the more I started thinking about Stepney, the more I started digging in this sort of, uh, this hazy, obscure thing. And then you pull back the curtain and there's all of this genius behind it. It's just, and it is like no other version of Amen you will ever hear. Yeah. It's just harmonically. It's deep. It's deep. You know, it's, it's coming straight from, you know, people like Bartok and, and uh, Mahler. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to study to be able to learn how to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I also, somebody else we didn't give a shout out to, another legendary Chicago Ranger, speaking of the impressions, yeah. uh, Johnny Pate, who was actually still with us. Oh, yeah. Okay. John, Johnny Pate, I believe, is 95 now. He lives in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he's living in a uh, uh, senior facility down there. And um, I played a gig at uh, North Texas State. This was maybe six or seven years ago. You know, and at that time, he was like, you know, 88, right. <laughs> 87, 88. And uh, we spent the afternoon together. And uh, to think about those great African-American arrangers that they had in that stable at that time between Johnny Pate working, working with the Impressions. I mean, they, they were on... ABC, but they were still Chicago-based. Right. Charles Stepney, Richard Evans. I mean, some bad cats that really never got the credit they deserved outside of the the, the family. And so, what what do you think about these institutions? Because I know I know Stepney wanted to go to Juilliard, which is your alma mater. Right. I think it was a a financial thing at the right. time where he wasn't able to go, and he goes to this sort of local Chicago conservatory, but he, uh, there's a book apparently, uh, uh, like a Juilliard book of something. Oh, there's all kinds of great books he probably could have uh, uh, learned from at that time. Walter Piston's book about orchestrating. Um, uh, gosh, what's another book that he probably could have read? I mean, there's, there's so many great books that you could learn different things about or, or orchestration. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I always tell, you, you know, younger musicians who are interested in this kind of stuff, you know, you don't really have to spend the big bucks to go to these major conservatories if you really, really want to learn about this craft. Mm -hmm. It's not bad if you go. I mean, look, I learned a lot at Juilliard. I was only there for one year, and I loved every minute of being there. But I probably learned more on the road being around the cat's that made this music that I wanted to play, you Hello. know? So, um, I, you know, you can, and you can hear it in the work of Charles Stepney, you know? Absolutely. Because he, he, okay. So clearly he's, he's trained and he has his credentials and no one can take that away from him, his classical training and all that kind of stuff. But this is somebody who also put in that, that extra work, that supplemental work that he felt for whatever reason, That's right. that he needed to become the orchestrator who Ramsey Lewis said could be on a plane orchestrating on a, a napkin he, yeah, didn't, he, he didn't even need it. to you know be listening to something i mean the brilliance and the genius that it takes to be able to hear all of that i don't even that's I right can't even begin 
you need training to be able to do that. Cause like, I, I remember talking to Cecil Bridgewater one time and he was telling me these great stories about Thad Jones and, uh, they were on a plane going to Germany. Thad Jones had gotten commissioned to write three new pieces for this uh, this radio uh, big band there. Uh-huh. And um, they said they'd get on the airplane because Cecil was uh, Thad's main copyist at that time. They get on the plane to go to Germany to play these three pieces. Thad only has two pieces done. Uh-oh. They're going to the gig. And they don't have, he doesn't have the third piece written. And, uh, and, and, uh, um, Cecil's like, dad, where's the third piece? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. You know, he's like, when, you know, first rehearsals in two days. Right. He's like, just relax. I, I got this. Since they on the plane going to Europe, right. Thad is sitting in the window seat. He's got his pillow up on the window. He's he's relaxing. He said, you know, Cecil, get, get your paper out. He gets uh-huh. his paper out. He's like, okay, uh, the piece is going to be in B flat. You know, put it put everybody, you know, in B flat. And, and this is like a transposed score, not a concert score. So he's writing it down. And he's like, okay, uh, trumpet one, give me a uh, eighth note rest. And give me four eighth notes. It's going to be C. E flat, D, B flat. He starts dictating the score. No to way. C- to Cecil Bridgewater from his head oh. while he's sitting there on the airplane, like half asleep. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he and Cecil said once they got to Germany, he said, save for a couple of notes that might have been wrong, most of it was pretty dead on the money. Right. You know. And he was like, yo, that's that's another level of genius. And you know? that's what we don't celebrate about, like you said, our black orchestrators, that genius that, you know, that's right. that, that sophisticated, y'all can't see my air quotes, but that, yeah. that, that other level of being able to hear and arrange and orchestrate and, and put things together that make we, we don't get enough credit for having learned, you know, that, that sort of learned skill, yes. you know, sitting in a classroom or reading a book or, or having that sort of academic study of a particular subject that eventually morphs into something that can just be done without thinking about it. I mean, that's what we do with language. You know, it's the same thing that, that's done with music. Right. Wow. I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I tell I tell young students all the time, I say, look, when you make a sentence, when you're speaking, you don't consciously think, how am I going to start my sentence? Am I going to start it with a noun, a verb, or an adverb, or an adjective? You just speak because you've learned how to do it. It's the same thing with music. But if you don't really take time to really study it, there's certain things you're not going to be able to do, or you're not going to be able to translate it to people who know who, who who need to know what you're thinking, you know? Right, exactly. And so not only was Stepney able to acquire this knowledge and really have respect for the the, the craft and, and dive as deep as he did, but what he brought out of himself to meet that information and that knowledge. Yeah. I get I get chills. 
I get chills when I when I hear it because that's where the that's where the magic is. It's like when you have the 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 education and the resource, and then it meets your God given inspiration. What like that's when you get what we are privileged to hear out of out of Step Me. Amen. Amen. Just incredible, incredible. I I hope more people start to learn more about those rotary connection recordings because they're they're um they're so different from anything that was going on then and now that's they're right just really i don't even know how to describe them they're just uh they're genreless you know that's it that's yeah. it because you know people like to say okay because of the times Right. Psychedelic. Right. You know, it, it has this like, and it does, you know, it can give you that that feel, the sitar and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Know. But what category can you put, you know, amen in? You know, what what can you what category can you put I am the black gold of the sun? Yeah, right. That's, that's right. That's right. Another song that's just just the feel the, the another thing I love about Stepney is the way he arranged those oohs and ahs and laws the vocals because to me and you can correct me but it sounds like he almost was was writing for voice as well indeed see for me that is really sort of the final frontier for real true genius orchestrators because I even think probably the most celebrated orchestrators don't know how to write for voice you need to bring somebody in for that. This <laughs> is somebody who really focuses on that, you know. But uh, all those uh, those choral parts, yes. that's that's heavy, extra heavy. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I can't thank you enough uh, for for spending this time with me, for educating me further, for giving me a fuller context of. Charles Stepney's greatness. Because for me, I, I'm a kid who heard this sound and it changed my life. He yeah. changed my life. And I, I and I just, right. And I just can't let him go. And I just want to see just a halo of appreciation and around this, this genius who is truly, you know, some people are like, he needs an unsung. Unsung is cool. That's a start. He needs, there needs to be the Charles Stepney classical scholarship Hello, Juilliard or where, you know, and his, we need the Charles Stepney curriculum and all that kind of stuff and bring those programs to, to, uh, to black in in particular. I mean, he's for everybody, but you know, where my son went, no pointer, he went to know the no pointer music school oh nice yeah and so they have a string program of course no pointer his wife um runs the the foundation she's an incredible human and um i got to work with him one time did you really yes yep. oh wow him and gene karn and lonnie liston smith yeah <laughs> this, this is the 80s no 90s Nin- 19 uh 1990 to be exact got it yeah yep. How cool would it be if there was like a, a Charles Stepney program in in yeah. schools? You know, I mean, that's what I—that's my hope. And I'm just so happy to be spending this time with you, talking about one of my favorite musicians. And I just want to thank you for giving me more context, educating me about Stepney in a way that I didn't know before. Christian McBride, what can you plug? Where can people? 
find you everywhere, obviously. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> but um, where should we send folks? Oh, well, sis, um, look, you, you know how I feel about you. I deeply respect your work. And uh, I always got you back in anything that you do. Um, and thank you for, for putting a spotlight on someone who should have had a spotlight put on him a long time ago, you know. Um, so it's always a joy to speak with you. So, uh, you know, just check ChristianMcBride.com and, and uh, you know, all the, all the various usual social media places, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And, uh, you know, I'll be putting stuff up. Awesome. And I understand that Newport is is on. Is it on? Yes. Yeah. We, we're uh, it's going to be very small, not not nearly the uh, full scale uh, festival that that we're used to having. But we will have something. We're still trying to figure out what that'll be. Got it. Okay. It'll be intimate. <laughs> right. Exactly. As all of we, we're getting creative, you know, in this COVID period. But yeah. Oh, man, Christian, I just. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time. You know it, sis. Milestones with Angelica Beener is a production of WBGO Studios. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.